Well, I want to invite you to take your Bibles again and turn back to that portion of God's Word that I read earlier, Luke 24. And I want to zero in on that final section of what I read, verses 36 through the end of the chapter. And let me just reread it for you so that it's fresh in our minds. Luke chapter 24, starting in verse 36. While they were telling these things, he himself stood in their midst and said to them, Peace be to you. But they were startled and frightened and thought that they were seeing a spirit. And he said to them, Why are you troubled and why do doubts arise in your hearts? See my hands and my feet, that it is I myself. Touch me and see, for a spirit does not have flesh and bones as you see that I have. And when he had said this, he showed them his hands and his feet. And while they still could not believe it because of their joy and amazement, he said to them, have you anything here to eat? They gave him a piece of a broiled fish and he took it and ate it before them. Now he said to them, These are my words which I spoke to you while I was still with you, that all things which are written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures, and he said to them, Thus it is written that the Christ would suffer and rise again from the dead the third day, and that repentance for forgiveness of sins would be proclaimed in his name to all the nations beginning from Jerusalem. You are witnesses of these things. And behold, I'm sending forth the promise of my Father upon you, but you are to stay in the city until you're clothed with power from on high. And he led them out as far as Bethany, and he lifted up his hands and blessed them. While he was blessing them, he parted from them and was carried up into heaven. And they, after worshiping him, returned to Jerusalem with great joy and were continually in the temple praising God. God, we have been praising you for raising your son Jesus from the dead and I pray now as we come to your word that you would open up our minds to understand the scriptures and that the power of your spirit that you promised to send to your followers would be active amongst us today or that you would be stirring up the hearts of those who are unbelievers here today who have yet to place their faith in Christ alone for their salvation. And Lord, that you would also uh, be stirring us up, those of us who are Christians, Lord, that we would see the implications of the resurrection for our lives today. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, when a company wants to sell us their product, one of the most effective means they use to convince us that we need to buy it is showing us before and after pictures of others whose lives have been transformed by their product. And when you look at the pictures, sometimes it's hard to believe that it's the same person because they look so different. And it's the the radical change in a person's life that is the greatest proof that something is real, that it works, that it deserves our attention, and it's worth the price that we have to pay for it. The same principle applies to the resurrection of Jesus Christ. The resurrection is the foundation of Christianity. Christianity stands or falls with the truth of the resurrection. And that's why ever since Christ rose from the dead, the veracity of the resurrection has been attacked and called into question. And for centuries, skeptics have tried to disprove the resurrection as a fraud or a, or a hoax and have come up with all these clever theories to explain away the resurrection. But there's one thing that makes all these theories about the resurrection so absolutely absurd and completely illogical. It's the one thing that blows a, a gaping hole in any attempt to deny or disprove that Jesus did indeed rise from the dead. That one thing is the radical transformation of the disciples. And I agree with the great British preacher John Stott who said in his classic book, Basic Christianity, and I quote here, he says, perhaps the transformation of the disciples of Jesus is the greatest evidence of all for the resurrection. 
Perhaps the transformation of the disciples of Jesus is the greatest evidence of all for the resurrection. Test this with me this morning. Before the resurrection, the disciples were all over the map. One had betrayed him, another had denied him, the rest had abandoned him. They were frightened, they were disillusioned, they were depressed, they were defeated. They had lost their dear friend, their great leader was dead, all their hopes and dreams of overthrowing Rome were shattered, their visions of reigning with Christ in Jerusalem had vanished, their promising movement had come to a tragic end, their revolution had failed, their cause had died, or so they thought. But then something reunited them and revitalized this motley crew of defeated men and transformed them into this dynamic alliance that that literally turned the world upside down. So something turned this, this bunch of cowards who were so scared of the religious leaders that they had locked themselves up in the, in the upper room in hiding, and, and, and they were transformed into this unstoppable force of courageous preachers who fearlessly confronted the religious leaders, and no amount of persecution could silence them or stop them. The question is, what caused this dramatic change? Well, what transformed them? I think the only explanation for the radical change of Jesus' disciples was his resurrection. And I think the transformation of his disciples is undeniable proof that he really did rise from the dead. And it's that, that transformation that I want to talk about with you today, along with highlighting the inseparable connection between Jesus' resurrection and the Great Commission. I considered titling this sermon, Jesus Rose from the Dead, So What? Because there is a big so what. We have a a mission to accomplish as a result of Christ's resurrection. So let's look at this passage together. And again, this this passage is really like the climactic scene in a, in a movie. It's the conclusion. It's the culmination, the grand finale of the Gospel of Luke. Luke had carefully compiled a chronological account of the life and ministry of Jesus Christ, and he had recorded how Jesus was promised, uh, how he had been born and baptized and tempted, how he preached many uh, sermons, how he performed many miracles, how he obeyed uh, and honored God perfectly his entire life, how he was betrayed and arrested and tried and crucified and how he rose again from the dead. And in these final verses of his gospel, Luke recorded how the one who had come to earth to seek and to save the lost, which is really the theme verse of of the gospel of Luke, but he records now how this one who came to seek and to save the lost commissioned his disciples to carry on that mission after he was gone. Jesus had lived and died and rose again and was about to go back to heaven to his rightful place at the right hand of God the Father. And before he left earth, he still had one last thing left to do. He had to rally his followers and motivate and equip them to fulfill the mission that he had set in motion. He started it and they were the ones He had chosen to finish it. His work was almost over. Their work was about to start. And so from a human perspective, Jesus had a difficult task in front of him. Because after his death, his disciples were in sad shape. And and he had just 40 days, just a little over a month, to round them all up, to refocus them, and reignite them for the job that he had called them to do. And even as the reports of the resurrection trickled in, they were even more perplexed. And some flat flat out refused to believe that he could possibly be alive. So Jesus had his work cut out for him. How could he bring together this ragtag band of fearful, bewildered men into this powerful movement that would propel the message of salvation to the ends of the earth? 
What would possibly transform this group of faint-hearted followers into a strong, bold team of witnesses who would impact the entire world with the good news that Jesus had died and rose from the dead so people could have their sins forgiven? Well, Luke recorded for us five ways that Jesus encouraged and equipped his disciples to carry out his mission after he has left. And these are the same five things that should encourage and equip us as a church to be faithful witnesses for Jesus Christ. So what are these five ways? Let's look at them one at a time this morning. Number one, Jesus convinced them he was real. Jesus convinced them that he was real. Notice verse 36. While they were telling these things, he himself stood in their midst and said to them, Peace be to you. But they were startled and frightened and thought that they were seeing a spirit. So here the disciples were gathered in the upper room. John recorded that the doors were locked because they were so afraid of what the Jewish religious leaders might do to them since they had been followers of the rebel that they had just crucified. And so they were anxious. They were unsure about what their future held. But then a few of them said that Jesus had risen from the dead and they had actually seen him with their own eyes. And yet even though they had heard the testimony of the angels and the the women and and Peter and now the experience of this couple on the road to Emmaus, they they, they still weren't totally convinced. They were at a loss as to what to think and that battle between hope and despair still raged in their hearts and and they weren't just going to take anyone else's word for it. The only way they would be convinced is if they saw Jesus themselves. And so Jesus showed up and suddenly appeared out of nowhere, and it freaked him out. That's why he said, peace be to you. In other words, hey, settle down, relax, it's okay. And at first they thought they were seeing a ghost, and it says they were terrified. Notice verse 38, and he said to them, why are you troubled, and why do doubts arise in your hearts? See my hands and my feet, that it is I myself, touch me and see, for a spirit does not have flesh and bones as you see that I have. And when he had said this, he showed them his hands and his feet. So Jesus wanted to make sure they knew they weren't hallucinating, that that what they were seeing wasn't a a figment of their imagination. By the way, that's one of the most well-known theories uh, to somehow debunk the resurrection is that, that it was just really all an hallucination, that, that the disciples, you know, uh, really wanted Jesus to come back to life so badly that they just, they imagined that it actually happened. They were hallucinating, like they were on a bad LSD trip or something, which is ridiculous because none of them thought that he had risen from the dead. They thought when he was dead, it was like game over. And so here was Jesus wanting to help them see that, no, this is, this is real. I'm, I'm actually here. And even though he had a, a glorified body that, that was no longer bound by human limitations, you could still see it. You could still touch it. And I think he was showing them his, his hands and, 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 his, and his feet and maybe even his side. We know he did that with Thomas, right? Doubting Thomas and said, look, look at the nails. It's me. I'm the one that was on that cross. But even that didn't convince them that Jesus was really alive. Look at verse 41. While they still could not believe it, because of their joy and amazement, he said to them, have you anything here to eat? And they gave him a piece of broiled fish, and he took it and ate it before them. So here their fear now turned to joy, but it was still just too good to be true. And so Jesus asked them for something to eat. It's not that, that he was hungry, but he wanted to prove that he wasn't just a ghost, but he really was alive. And so for starters here, in order for Jesus' disciples to be able to carry on his mission, he knew 
they had to first be convinced that he was real. And the only way for that to happen was for them to have a personal experience with the risen Lord Jesus Christ. Because he knew that once he became a living reality to them, telling others about him would become their consuming passion. That that would take care of itself. And so I think it begs the question for us that if telling others about Jesus is not our consuming passion, perhaps it's because Jesus is not a living reality to us. Some of you are here this morning and you've been simply taking someone else's word for it. You've never experienced Jesus Christ for yourself. You've just kind of been going off of what mom and dad have told you all these years. Or maybe what your husband has said all these years or maybe what your wife has said all these years or maybe what those of you who come to church every Sunday, what I've been telling you all these years, but you've yet to have a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. But see, when you, when you truly come to know Jesus as your Lord and Savior, you will want the rest of the world to know about him. And having a passion for lost people and a passion for evangelism and tell others about Christ is one of the most basic fruits of being a Christian. And Jesus began here by convincing them that he was real. Secondly, he clarified their message and their mission. He clarified their, their message and mission. And we see this in verses 44 through 47, which, by the way, these instructions that we're about to read, he perhaps gave them, or probably gave them a month later, just before the ascension. Okay, so there's some time gap, perhaps, in that white space between verses 43 and 44. But look at what he says in verse 44. He says, now, in light of the fact that they understood he was alive and well, okay, that he had actually rose from the dead, now he said to them, these are my words which I spoke to you while I was still with you, that all things which are written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. By the way, those are the three sections of the Old Testament, right? History, um, poetry, and prophecy. And they all point to Christ. And it says in verse 45, then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures. So he reminded them of all the times that that he had told them that he was going to die and rise again and how that was a fulfillment of Old Testament prophecy. He did the same thing that he did with the two disciples on the Emmaus Road. Verse 25, O foolish men and slow of heart to believe in all the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary for the Christ to suffer these things and to enter into his glory? Then beginning with Moses when all the, and with all the prophets, he explained to them the things concerning himself and all the scriptures. So this was a review. He's like, okay, class, let's review. <laughs> We've been doing this for three years now, and I've been telling you a whole lot of things, and tomorrow's the test, okay? Uh, you're about to take the test. I'm about to leave and go back to heaven. You're going to be on your own. Let's make sure you got this, Okay? And so he was just reviewing all the things that he had told them, the the times that he had spent with them. But more importantly, it says he supernaturally opened up their minds to fully understand all that the scripture said about the Messiah achieving glory through the path of suffering. And that was the part that was a little strange. That was kind of like the curveball that they were still trying to get their mind around. But then notice verse 46. Jesus didn't want them to miss the point of why he had come to live and die and rise again. He said, thus, it is written that the Christ would suffer and rise again from the dead the third day and that repentance for forgiveness of sins would be proclaimed in his name.
So Jesus made it very clear, very simple. First of all, the message. The message is simply this. Based on the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, God will forgive your sins if you repent of them. That's the message. Jesus himself said, Mark 1.15, repent and believe for the kingdom of God is at hand. Peter got the memo. He was here. Acts 2.38 in his opening sermon on Pentecost said, repent and let each of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of sins. You think he was paying attention in class? I think so. Paul later in Acts 20 verse 21 said that he solemnly testified to both Jews and Greeks of repentance toward God and faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. And then in Acts 26 20, Paul said, I kept declaring that they should repent and turn to God, performing deeds appropriate to repentance. So that's our message. It's very clear. Repent. Turn away from your life of sin and turn to Jesus Christ in faith. Now how about the mission? Notice he went on to say, Thus it is written that the Christ would suffer and rise again from the dead the third day and that repentance for forgiveness of sins would be proclaimed in his name. Where? To all the nations beginning from Jerusalem. So listen up, class. He says, I want you to start preaching this message in Jerusalem. And then once all, everybody in Jerusalem has heard the message, then I want you to, to fan out and, uh, and, and tell everyone else until everyone on earth hears it. That's the mission. We know this as the Great Commission, right? Matthew chapter 28, verse 19, Jesus said, go and make disciples of what? Who? All the nations. Mark 16, 15, go into all the world and preach the gospel to all creation. In Acts chapter 1, verse 8, Jesus said, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you shall be my witnesses both in Jerusalem and in Judea and Samaria and even to the remotest part of the earth. So our message and our mission couldn't be more clear, couldn't be more straightforward. That's why we make such a big deal about, um, number one, knowing the biblical gospel, the, the message that we're to proclaim, But then to get out there in our community, first and foremost, right? This is our Jerusalem, if you will, Montgomery, and and telling people about Jesus in Montgomery, but also telling people about Jesus in Texas and telling people in the the United States about Jesus and then telling people uh, in all different parts of the world on every continent, even the most remotest spot on the earth, right? And so we, we make a big deal about local outreach, and then we also talk about global missions, and it's not an either or, it's a both and. And, and the, 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 the light that shines the farthest should also shine the brightest right around here. So we have our work cut out for us as a church. That is our message, that is our mission, and Jesus made it very clear. Thirdly, he commissioned his disciples for their mission. He commissioned them for their mission. Verse 48, very simply, he says, you are witnesses of these things. So to commission someone means to send them or to delegate something to them or appoint them to a certain task. And the specific task that the disciples were commissioned for was to be witnesses. And notice he didn't give them a choice in this. They were witnesses. They had seen the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ with their own two eyes. They were eyewitnesses of that. And and Jesus allowed them to experience all that they had seen and heard, not so that they could sit around in the upper room until he returned saying, wow, wasn't that cool? How cool is that? No, he wanted them to, to go out and tell people what they had seen and heard. And I think too many times churches, our church, could be more like that upper room where we got that holy huddle going on and we're, we're sitting around here every Sunday going, wow, isn't this cool? This is so cool. 
I'm so glad I'm here. I'm so glad I've experienced and I've seen and heard all that I've seen and heard. And well, that's great. Worship the Lord, praise the Lord. But don't forget, we gather together and we grow together so that ultimately we could what? Go. Go and tell other people how cool it is. There's others that need to know how cool Jesus is and how cool the gospel is and how amazing. And what I mean by cool, not like, hey, we're trying to make Jesus cool. I'm saying that it's an amazing message. It's an amazing gospel. He says, you are witnesses of these things. That word witness is the Greek word marturon, where we derive our English word what? Martyr. Ironically, all of the disciples, with the exception of John, who was exiled on the Isle of Patmos, all the other disciples died as martyrs for being a faithful witness for Jesus Christ. Peter was crucified, if you remember, upside down. Andrew was crucified on an X-shaped cross. James was beheaded. Thomas had a spear rammed into his side. Uh, Philip was hung upside down and pierced in his thighs and his ankles, so he bled to death. Uh, Thaddeus was clubbed to death. I actually consider titling this message, Dying for the Resurrection. Kind of like a play on words there, right? But these guys were willing to die to make the resurrection of Jesus Christ known to the world. Listen, you don't die for a lie. Who would do that? Well, we may never be asked to be a martyr for Christ, but we are a witness for Christ nevertheless. And you think about a witness. What is the, the role of a witness? A witness is someone who simply shares what they've seen and heard. Big difference between a, a witness and a lawyer. It's a lawyer's job to argue and try to prove their case. The job of a witness is simply to report what they saw and heard. What a great reminder to us that our job isn't to argue and reason with people in order to convince them to become a Christian. It's not our responsibility to save people, but to simply tell them how they can be saved. The Spirit is the soul winner. We're just the tool that he uses to get the gospel out there, and and once it's out there, what he chooses to do with it is up to him. But again, notice how simple verse 48 is. You are witnesses of these things. This was not a suggestion. This was not an option. It is the responsibility of every follower of Jesus. Every one of us here in this room who have placed our faith in Christ alone, who we claim to be our Lord and Savior, guess what? We are witnesses for him. The question is, are you a good witness or a bad witness? Yes, it's an obligation. It's a command. It's a responsibility. But it's also a glorious privilege. I love how Paul describes this privilege in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 20. This is the, the, the verse that we based our ambassador academy on. In 2 Corinthians 5, 20, Paul said, Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ. As though God were making an appeal through us, we beg you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. So we've been commissioned. We've been commissioned to be Christ's witnesses Number four, notice how Jesus covenanted to empower them for their mission. He covenanted to empower them for their mission, or he promised to empower them for their mission. Verse 49, he says, and behold, I'm sending forth the promise of my Father upon you, but you are to stay in the city until you're clothed with power from on high. The obvious question is, how in the world did Jesus think that this uneducated untrained group of guys could possibly reach the entire world with a message of forgiveness through his death and resurrection. Well, he knew it was impossible for them or us to accomplish this mission on our own. 
He never intended them or us to attempt to evangelize the world in our own power, with our own meager resources. Earlier in his ministry, Jesus had promised his disciples that that after he went back to heaven that he would send another comforter to come alongside them and help them. Who was that? The Holy Spirit. John records several times Jesus' words to his disciples about the Holy Spirit, John 14, 26, but the helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I said to you. Chapter 15, verse 26, when the helper comes, whom I will send to you from the Father, that is the Spirit of truth who proceeds from the Father, he will testify about me and you will testify also. And then chapter 16, verse 7, but I tell you the truth, it is to your advantage that I go away, for if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you, but if I go, I will send him to you, and he, when he comes, and this should be so encouraging to us as we think about uh, sharing the good news of salvation with unbelievers, it says, and when he comes, he will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment concerning sin because they do not believe in me and concerning righteousness because I go to the Father and you no longer see me and concerning judgment because the rule, ruler of this world has been judged. In other words, it's not our job to convince anybody. That's the Spirit's work. Or to convict them. He says, I have many more things to say to you, but you cannot bear them now. But when he, the spirit of truth, comes, he will guide you into all the truth, for he will not speak on his own initiative, but whatever he hears, he will speak, and he will disclose to you what is to come. He will glorify me, for he will take of mine and will disclose it to you. And I love how Jesus said in Mark 13 that when you guys get arrested and you're drugged before the authorities and asked to give an account, for your witness, don't worry about what to say. You don't need to plan ahead what to say because the Holy Spirit will give you the words to say in that moment. And so now at the end of his life on this earth, Jesus was simply reminding his disciples about the coming of the Holy Spirit and he told them to stay in Jerusalem and to wait for the Holy Spirit to empower them to be his witnesses and as we know just 10 days later the Holy Spirit would come and unleash his power on them at Pentecost Acts chapter 2 and I think that was what Jesus was referring to when he said in Matthew 28 20 lo I am with you always even to the end of the age I think that was a reference to the abiding presence of the Holy Spirit that I'm with you through the Holy Spirit so again what a helpful reminder this morning that God never intended us to win people to Christ with our own wisdom our own ability we cannot do it by ourselves the Holy Spirit is the true source of power and evangelism. And so we must learn to rely completely on the Holy Spirit. How do we do that? By praying to the Holy Spirit. That's how, we, uh, that's how we express our dependence on the Holy Spirit. And by using his word, this is the sword of the Spirit. This is the, the Spirit swords, right? It's the, he inspired this and he empowers this. And so we need to use the, the word of God when we share the gospel. Not, not our own words. We don't need to share our thoughts. We need to share God's thoughts. And if that means just simply reading the scriptures, let let the lion out of the cage, man. It'll speak for itself. One commentator summarized this well. He said, quote, when the gospel is truly preached in the power of the spirit, people will repent of their sin." Men and women will see themselves as guilty, hell-bound sinners in the sight of God. They will realize that salvation is to be found in no one else but in Jesus Christ. They will know that there is no other name under heaven given to men by which we must be saved. And when the power of the Holy Spirit comes upon them, they will flee to Christ for forgiveness of their sins, and they will be saved. That's good theology right there. And that takes all the pressure off of us as we strive to be faithful witnesses for Christ. Well, there's one more thing that Luke mentions here 
And that is how Jesus consecrated his disciples for their mission. He consecrated them for their mission. Notice verse 50. And he led them out as far as Bethany, and he lifted up his hands and blessed them. While he was blessing them, he parted from them and was carried up into heaven. So the last thing that Jesus did before he ascended back to his throne in heaven was to take his disciples out to the Mount of Olives, and he blessed them. And I think this blessing was the key to their effectiveness, and that's why we need to beg God for his blessing on our lives and on our witness. And so these are the five ways Jesus encouraged and equipped his disciples to carry on his mission after he left. The question we have left to ask is, did it work? You bet it did. Because in about a month time, these guys were transformed from fearful worriers into joyful worshipers. Notice Verses 52 and 53, and they, after worshiping him, returned to Jerusalem with great joy and were continually in the temple praising God. Guess what? They weren't in the upper room anymore. Now they were out in the open praising God for raising his son Jesus from the dead so that their sins could be forgiven. And so by the time Jesus left, they had become absolutely convinced that he was the Son of God who had died and rose again from the dead. And they realized that this was not the end after all, but it was only the beginning. Have you ever got done watching a movie in the theater and It just ended, and you felt like, man, they totally left us hanging here. And you turn to the person sitting next to you that you're at the movies with, and you're like, dude, there's a sequel coming. There's got to be a sequel. And really, that's how the gospel of Luke ends here. It just kind of leaves you hanging. And you're, you're, you're left thinking, man, there's, there's got to be there's got to be a sequel coming. Well, sure enough, Luke wrote a sequel. It's called the book of Acts. Turn over there for, with me for just a moment. Because here in the book of Acts, Luke went on to record how this mixed up muddle of men were radically transformed and supernaturally empowered by the Holy Spirit and how the Holy Spirit used them to literally change the world. And from what we see in the book of Acts, the the resurrection is the one thing that motivated the disciples to tell the world about Jesus. In fact, the resurrection became the centerpiece of apostolic preaching throughout the rest of the New Testament. And it remains the heart of the gospel to this very day. Notice the first sermon out of the gate, Acts chapter 2. This is Peter stepping up to give an explanation for what the, the, all the people saw was happening to these 120 or so disciples of Christ. This is Acts chapter 2, verse 22. He said, men of Israel, listen to these words. Jesus the Nazarene, a man attested to you by God with miracles and wonders and signs which God performed through him in your midst, just as you yourselves know, this man delivered over by the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God, you nailed to a cross by the hands of godless men and put him to death, but God raised him again, up again, putting an end to the agony of death since it was impossible for him to be held in its power. By the way, this was the, the denier. This is the guy who denied Christ. Now he's boldly preaching Christ. Notice the nuance here. He's quoting the Old Testament. He's quoting David in verses 25 through 28. 
But look at what he says in verse 29. Brethren, I may confidently say to you regarding the patriarch David that he both died and was buried and his tomb is with us to this day. And so because he was a prophet and knew that God had sworn to him an oath with an oath to seat one of his descendants on his throne, he looked ahead and spoke of the resurrection of the Christ, that he was neither abandoned to Hades nor did his flesh suffer decay. This Jesus God raised up again to which we are all witnesses. Well, that sounds familiar, doesn't it? What did Jesus say? You are witnesses of these things. You think Peter was listening to class that day? He sure was. Notice chapter 3, verse 14. Again, another opportunity to preach. But you disown the holy and righteous one and ask for a murderer to be granted to you, but put to death the prince of life, the one whom God raised from the dead, a fact to which we are witnesses. Well, they ended up getting arrested. This was the first of many times. Um, notice chapter 4, verse 1, as they were speaking to the people, the priests and the captain of the temple guard and the Sadducees came up to them being greatly disturbed because they were teaching the people and proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection from the dead. And they laid hands on them and put them in jail until the next day, for it was already evening, but many of those who had heard the message believed, and the number of the men came to about 5,000. On the next day, their rulers and elders and scribes were gathered together in Jerusalem, and Annas the high priest was there, and Caiaphas and John and Alexander and all who were of high priestly descent. When they had placed them in the center and they began to... They began to inquire, by what power or in what name have you done this? Talking about the miracle of, of healing this lame man. Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, wasn't Peter the big bad fisherman, right? No, it was Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, rulers and elders of the people, if we are on trial today for a benefit done to a sick man as to how this man has been made well, let it be known to all of you and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ, the Nazarene, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by this name, this man stands here before you in good health. He is the stone which is rejected by you, the builders by which became the chief cornerstone, and there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven that has been given among men by which we must be saved. And then look at verse 13. Now, as they observed the confidence of Peter and John and understood that they were uneducated and untrained men, they were amazed and began to recognize them as having been with Jesus. We could keep going here, but look at chapter 5, verses 40 and 42. This was after they had been arrested again and told not to teach and preach about Jesus, particularly about the resurrection. This is chapter 5, verse 40. They took his advice. This was Gamaliel's advice that he gave them to just let things go, and if it was really you know, of the Lord, they weren't going to stop it anyway. And if it wasn't of the Lord, it was going to fizzle out. They took his advice and after calling the apostles in, they flogged them and ordered them not to speak in the name of Jesus and they then released them. So they went on their way from the presence of the council rejoicing that they had been considered worthy to suffer shame for his name. And every day in the temple and from house to house, they kept right on teaching and preaching Jesus as the Christ. Paul got into the mix. You remember in Acts 9, he was radically converted to Christ when the risen Lord Jesus Christ knocked him off his horse, blinded him, spoke to him. Talk about freaking a guy out. He was, he was headed to go arrest some Christians and, and try them and try to kill them, have them killed. And Jesus said, why are you doing this? Why are you persecuting me? And so Paul got radically saved, and, and notice he picked up the same theme of resurrection. This is chapter 13, verse 26. 
brethren, sons of Abraham's family, and those among you who fear God, to us the message of his salvation has been sent. For those who live in Jerusalem and their rulers, recognizing neither him nor the utterances of the prophets which are dead, are read every Sabbath, fulfilled these by condemning him. And though they found no ground for putting him to death, they asked Pilate that he be executed. When they had carried out all that was written concerning him, they took him down from the cross and laid him in a tomb, but God raised him from the dead. And we preach to you the good news. Uh, Well, excuse me, verse 31. And for many days he appeared to those who came up with him from Galilee to Jerusalem, the very ones who are now his witnesses to the people. I wish we had time to read more, but maybe just another chapter, Acts 17, verse 2. And according to Paul's custom, he went to them and for three Sabbaths reasoned with them from the scriptures explaining and giving evidence that Christ had to suffer and rise again from the dead and saying this Jesus whom I proclaiming to you is the Christ. And then there's that climactic moment when Paul was on Mars Hill. He had been drugged to the Areopagus and he wanted you know, all the intellectuals of the day said, hey, tell us what you're, this thing about the resurrection. We've not heard this before. Tell us a little bit more about this. And so he just blows up their, their false view of God in verses 22 through uh, 29. And then notice verse 30. This is Acts 17, 30. Therefore, he says, this is the conclusion of his sermon. Therefore, having overlooked the times of ignorance, the word ignorance is actually moron. The word we get moron from, he goes, Actually, Paul was saying, you guys have been a bunch of morons when it, when it comes to the way you've thought about God. But God has looked, overlooked the fact that you're morons and have treated him like a moron. God is now declaring to men that all people everywhere should repent because he has fixed a day in which he will judge the world in righteousness through a man whom he has appointed, having furnished proof to all men by raising him from the dead. So I read all that just to simply point out that the disciples were rebuked, they were threatened, they were flogged, they were imprisoned, and they eventually were killed for preaching about the resurrection. It's what drove them to to bravely and gladly give up their lives for the cause of Christ. Their zeal, their sacrifice can only be attributed to one thing, and that is Christ's resurrection. The resurrection of Jesus had totally turned their lives upside down, and consequently, they turned the world upside down. Acts 17, 6. So clearly, if it weren't for the resurrection, the Jesus movement would have fizzled out shortly after his death. But because Jesus did rise from the dead, Christianity has spread to every corner of the earth, and the lives of millions of individuals from every country, every religious background, every walk of life have been radically transformed. We're talking about former prostitutes and gang members and drug dealers and politicians and millionaires and professional athletes and movie stars and professors and doctors and lawyers and farmers and truck drivers and and computer experts and housewives and children and philosophers and engineers and skeptics you fill in the blank from you know former former Hindus and and in Buddhists and Muslims and Mormons and Catholics and Satanists and, and again fill in the blank from from China and Brazil and Africa and Vietnam and Germany Thailand India, England, Afghanistan, Russia. Josh McDowell, who wrote a classic book called Evidence That Demands a Verdict, which, by the way, he wrote after trying to disprove the resurrection. He set out to prove that Jesus did not rise from the dead. And this is what he said, quote, after more than 700 hours of studying this subject and thoroughly investigating its foundation, I have come to the conclusion that the resurrection of Jesus Christ is one of the most wicked, vicious, heartless hoax ever foisted upon the minds of men, or it is the most fantastic fact of history. 
He said, one thing that is confirmed to me, the resurrection of Jesus Christ 2,000 years ago, is the transformation of the lives of millions of people when they become related by faith to the person of Jesus. Although they are from every walk of life and from all nations of the world, they are changed in remarkably similar ways. From the most brilliant professor to the most ignorant savage, when one puts his trust in Christ, his life begins to change. Some say it's just wishful thinking, or they simply excuse it by saying it doesn't prove a thing. For a Christian, however, behind his subjective experience, there is an objective reality as its basis. This objective reality is the person of Jesus Christ and his resurrection. So how about you? Are you one whose life has been transformed by the power of the resurrection? Jesus Christ will do the same thing for you as he has done for countless others who have repented of their sin and have placed their trust in Christ's death and resurrection to save them. The scriptures couldn't be clearer. It says in Romans chapter 10, verse 9, if you confess with your mouth Jesus as Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. I want to invite you just to bow your heads as we close our time together. And just listen for a moment. The resurrection of Jesus Christ changed everything. The question is, has it changed you? Are you ready for a change in your life? Do you know you desperately need that change? Do you truly want that change? If that's you, then I would encourage you to pray a prayer, something like this, just in the quietness of your own heart, just you talking to the Lord one-on-one, you could just say something like, dear God, I know that you created me to have a personal relationship with you. I admit that I'm a sinner who's rebelled against you and deserves to be punished in hell. But right now, I willingly repent of my sinful lifestyle and I humbly place my faith in the person and work of Jesus Christ. I believe he died as a sinless sacrifice in my place on the cross. And I believe he rose again to prove that you accepted his sacrifice for my sin. I want Jesus to change my life. And so from this day forward, I commit my life to follow and obey him as my Lord and Savior. If you prayed that prayer, you meant that with all your heart, then you are now part of God's plan for spreading the good news of what Jesus did so others can be forgiven for their sin. God, we thank you that you raised Jesus from the dead and you have given us everything we need to powerfully and effectively fulfill Christ's mission of bringing the good news of salvation to the ends of the earth. And based on what we've learned today, the greatest proof of Christ's resurrection is the transformation of our lives. That people would see us, and especially if they knew us before, and now they see us now, and and we look so different, it's hard to believe it's the same person so, so please continue to transform us and conform us to the likeness of Christ so we can be better witnesses for Christ in a world that so desperately needs him. We pray this in his glorious name, amen.